I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 21 this morning. When we left uh, Luke a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 7, and we found out that humility brings us closer to God. And that was in the story of the harlot and the holy man, a memorable story. And that was all about the spiritual leaders uh, and the people that they led. And we found out that spiritual leaders thought that they were closer to God, uh, yet they weren't. Uh, they had no humility. So we've been talking about humility and pride for a while now. Scott just did two really good sermons on that. If you haven't heard them, I would suggest you go back and listen to them. They're fantastic. And so why, why is this so important? Why is humility so important? And so here's our truth for today. If we understand the concept of humility, then we will understand that in everything that we do, we put God on display. And we should be pointing to him instead of ourselves. Now, as believers, we have a tendency to struggle with this whole concept uh, because we, we believe that we're the center of the universe. It's so easy for us to put ourselves on display. And while I was preparing for the sermon, I remembered my college years and the times that we were on campus and, you know, it was the late 60s, early 70s or so, and we would shout, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching, and what we really meant was, the whole world is watching me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was kind of self-centered, and what I was really putting on display during that time was how little I knew about how the world functioned. The world was watching I didn't see anything that was very attractive. So I want to I talk to you about this idea of putting God on display. That's the, the title of our sermon this week, Putting God on Display. This is part 20 of our ongoing series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. And we're going to see this in five short vignettes. Some of you are probably unfamiliar with what the term vignette means. There was a day, it's not today, certainly, where you would go to the movies, and before the main feature started, there would be a newsreel, and then there would be a series of vignettes. These are very, very short stories. So vignettes are short stories, and they take you back to the day when it was actually possible for us to go to the movies and sit in a movie theater and watch a movie. Maybe that day will come again. We'll see. So we have five short vignettes, and the first one is a proclamation. That's in verses 1 through 3. The second one is a parable in verses 4 through 8. And it's a familiar parable. The third one is a purpose in verses 9 through 15. The, the fourth one is a privilege in verses 16 through 18. And the fifth one are the people of the privilege in 19 through 21. So let's take a look at what proclamation is being made. So in verse 1, Luke says, soon afterwards. Now, I, I just want you to watch the chronology here, because I've been telling you for a while, Luke doesn't really follow the same chronology that the other uh, Gospels portray. And it's because Luke is trying to tell a particular story. So we don't know how soon afterwards, but all of this comes after that incident in Simeon the Pharisee's uh, house, where we saw the, the harlot and the holy man. So soon afterwards, sometime after that happened, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, 
Now, we identified the 12 in Luke chapter 6. These are the 12 chosen disciples. And so the 12 are with him and also some women. Now, what we're going to find out, and, and, and again, if, if we look at other evidence we have in the Gospels, we're talking about several women. Uh, and having women as supporters, uh, we'll find out that they were supporters of the ministry, uh, was not totally unusual, but it was very unusual for the women to be traveling with the rabbi. So we have these women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Now, there was a stigma with that as well. So Luke is trying to point out something very unique here about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in there were Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, this is a radical reassessment of the position of women in Jesus' ministry. Now, now, women were more or less recognized by the rabbis, but not really acknowledged. And if you want to see how prominent this was, we can take a look at a document called the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is kind of a running commentary on the scriptures written by the Jews. The Mishnah didn't come along until somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century or so. But there was a rabbi named Yosei Yohanan, uh, and he speaks about hospitality and goodness. And here are the guidelines that, that the rabbi gives. Number one, let your house be wide open. Invite everybody in, he says. Number two, seat the poor at your table. And what he really meant is to treat the poor as though they are members of the family. Now, that was a little bit radical. But here's number three. Don't talk too much to women. And then, and, and so that's not enough. He has to give, you have to give reasons why. Uh, and the first reason is that talking to women does nothing but bring trouble on yourself. Talking to women wastes time that could otherwise be spent reading Torah. And talking to women ends up, causes you to end up as an heir of Gehenna. I don't know if you know much about Gehenna, but it's a valley just south of Jerusalem where they threw all the trash, and it was always burning, and it, it, was, it was a depiction of hell. So the rabbi says talking to women makes you an heir to hell. So that was the prevailing attitude about women in the first century. So Luke is upsetting this completely. And Jesus puts on a radical teaching. And that teaching is that women can learn. Now, that's not totally unusual. Some women learned here and there, uh, but it was rare. But not only can they learn, they can participate in the ministry. They played vital roles. And Luke sets the stage right here for women standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being crucified, and also attending in the upper room when the Spirit is poured out. And what he's trying to say is women can be disciples as well. Women can be followers. They're mentioned right along with all the, the, the other disciples, and that in itself is revealing, but we're talking about prominent women, married women, women who become associated with Jesus and become a part of his ministry. As they're traveling all around the land, people see the group that's with them. They see what's happening. And some of them undoubtedly were shocked. So the proclamation that we hear is the gospel. 
But the gospel is accompanied by a demonstration that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone can become a disciple of Jesus. Now, you think this is a no-brainer, but it's an issue that we deal with in the church today. About two years ago, I was asked to attend a funeral over in Maryland. It was at a Catholic church. And I went to the Catholic church, and I, I knew the priest who presided over the funeral. I knew the family. And I, I, I put up on my Facebook, I just went to a funeral of the Catholic church. The Holy Spirit is moving in the Catholic church. I heard testimonies of Jesus Christ. I heard the gospel preached. I heard the gospel sung. And immediately after that, I was contacted by somebody who's not a member of the church, praise God, who said, you need to take that down. God is not moving in the Catholic church. I said, but he is. I saw it. I heard it. I had the testimonies of it. I said, no, nobody in the Catholic church is saved. I said, well, that's pretty amazing. Why not? Well, because you can't get saved. They have bad theology. I said, okay. What happened before the Reformation? I mean, for 500 years. I have no idea what happened to those people. So we have to be careful that we're not excluding the very people that we're sent to witness to. The gospel is for everyone. It's not just for people in the Catholic Church. It's for people in the evangelical church. That might be news to some folks. Everyone, anyone can become a disciple of Christ. But not everyone who appears to be a disciple of Christ actually is. And that's what we're going to see as Jesus goes on to this parable, uh, a parable that he, he shows us that, that he knows that the increasingly larger crowds that are beginning to accompany him everywhere he goes, that not everybody in there is really listening to him. A lot of people are having experiences. A lot of people are making commitments, but not all of them are being changed. Not all of them that are following him are becoming believers. So let's take a look at the parable. We saw the proclamation uh, in the first vignette is the gospel for everyone. And so Jesus moves into the parable with verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, we've seen this phrase before, and it's, it, it, it's not just talking about their eardrums vibrating. It's talking about he who has an ear, he who hears this and appropriates it, and makes it part of his life, let, let him understand, not just listen to, but do these things, okay? So, I, I preached this sermon two years ago on uh, July 22nd, uh, 2018, uh, 2018, and uh, it was out of Matthew 13. The title of the sermon was Glory in the Mud, and the premise of that sermon was that we're all dirt. Uh, what distinguishes us is the type of fruit that we produce, only good dirt produces good fruit. And so here's what we found out back then. 
The sower, I, I mean, a lot of people see the sower in here as being God. The sower is us. The sower is the church. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to, to spread it everywhere. It doesn't matter where we are. We should be spreading it. We could look on the ground and think that maybe that we're going to waste our time here, but we don't, never know when it's going to take. So we're all called to preach the gospel. And we know that he who receives the fruit are those that will produce fruit. He who receives the fruit of the gospel will produce fruit on their own. Now, we've got to be careful on this because a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what fruit looks like. And so when we talk about fruit in the scriptures, frequently people default to, oh, lives being saved, lives being transformed. That's good fruit. But there are other types of fruit as well. There's prayer. There's giving. There's participation. There's teaching. There's serving. And lately, what we found out is that fruit can be humility. It can be a lack of pride. Scott's last two sermons. Fruit of the Holy Spirit can be compassion and mercy and grace. These are all fruit. So we find out that the parable is here to tell us that those who are changed will produce fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no change. So even at that, we need to be very careful to see that the fruit is the result of the change. The change comes first. Fruit rises up out of the change. Now again, a number of years ago, I was sitting up in era talking to a guy, and I, I thought he had anger issues. And we were trying to work into that and every time I brought it up he'd get mad at me uh, and, and finally I said I, I don't understand how do you justify this anger he said God made me that way God made you angry he said yes anger is the fruit of my ministry well we had to, I had to question that and I'll talk a little bit more about this a little later I had another friend that I had shared the gospel with and he said, John, I've got some things in my life that I need to change before I can do what you're asking me to do. Now, I was a new Christian back then. I didn't know enough to tell him that, no, 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 no. The change comes first. The change comes first. The fruit comes afterwards. He thought that he had to change in order to come into the presence of God. And actually what God was saying is, I'll do the changing. You just come. So... All of these things are true. All of these things are apparent to us as believers. Why, why the story? Why didn't Jesus just say, you need to be changed and then you'll produce some fruit? Don't worry, I'll take care of the change. I've got the Holy Spirit works with me and you just receive this. Well, that takes us to our third vignette. The purpose of the parables. Verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what his parable, this parable meant, now Luke wants Jesus' followers to know that they will produce fruit. Uh, and so he wants to make this obvious. And so then he, Jesus starts there and then kind of goes on to teach a principle of the kingdom. Verse 10. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So what we see 
we see two groups of people. Those who understand the parable and those who don't. For those who get the parables, the secret of the kingdom of God is revealed to them. For those who don't, well, you know what? They're not members of the kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there's nothing for them to get out of the parables. There may be some moral lessons to follow. There may be some good life lessons for them to learn. Perhaps there's some earthly wisdom in there. But for those who are not disciples of Christ, they don't understand that the parable is there to reveal the character and nature of God and the character and nature of God's kingdom. So we not only learn how to live by, li by reading the parables, by appropriating them, we learn more about God. And we learn more about his kingdom. And as we learn more about God and learn more about his kingdom, we learn more about how we should live as part of his kingdom. So Jesus doesn't leave them hanging because they asked about that particular parable. So he tells them what it means, starting in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches of the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And then we have the key phrase here in verse 15. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience so Jesus says the people of God sow the seed they sow the word they spread the gospel some will hear some will be changed but many will hear and experience no eternal change the ones who undergo this permanent transformation that we're talking about will bear fruit and they'll be productive for the kingdom of God. In some fashion, they'll be productive for the kingdom of God. So the purpose of the parables is to teach and equip the people of God to produce good fruit for the kingdom. Now, we already heard that good fruit can come in a lot of different forms, so we should be careful not to compare the fruit that we're producing with the fruit that someone else produces. We have a very godly woman in our church that came to me a couple years ago and said, I'm not bearing any fruit. And I said, oh, but I think you are. She said, no, I don't think I am. I've seen this and I've seen that. I said, well, tell me, what, what, do, you, what do you do with your time? She said, oh, I pray. I pray. And she said, there are sometimes that I pray and, and my, my heart breaks over what I'm praying for. There's sometimes when I pray and my heart is lifted up and I feel like I'm in the presence of Jesus. And I said, do you understand what type of fruit that prayer is? Do you understand how vitally the body of Christ needs the prayers that you're praying? Fruit comes in a lot of different forms. And we'll be doing ourselves a disservice if we begin comparing our fruit to the fruit of the Lord. Some of the fruit that we produce is up front. And some of it, no one will ever see until we stand in eternity together. If you're a believer, you are producing fruit. 
but not everybody's a believer. Not everybody is a member of the kingdom of God. So who are? Well, the ones who are producing fruit certainly are. And they have an opportunity that we're going to see in just a second. And that opportunity is how to put God on display. And generally, we'll be able to see who the members of the kingdom are by how they conduct themselves out in the real world. So those people who are members of the kingdom of God have availed to them a privilege. And that's our next vignette. What is this privilege? Look at this, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, this is quaint. We sang this when we were kids, maybe. Okay, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And, and so it's beautiful, and it, it, it's a more provocative than it thinks, because what it says is that the people of God have this privilege, and the privilege is the opportunity to shine the light of God, always pointing towards God, always pointing towards Christ, and never pointing towards ourselves. In short, the people of God put their transformation on display, and in putting their transformation on display, they're putting God on display. They're showing the handiwork of God. I have been changed. I'm a new creature. I have a new heart. I have a new life. I have eternal eyes. And God has done this. So the way we live puts God on display. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing that today? We show him to the world. Well, wait a minute. Now, verse 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Okay, so furthermore, what we find out is that we have this opportunity to put God on display, and that in the end, there are no secrets. I've said it a million times. The the myth of privacy runs rampant in our culture. There is no such thing as privacy. So when you think about it, number one, Somebody will say to me, I'm really upset with Facebook. They're putting all my personal information out there. I go, get off Facebook. If that bothers you, what are you doing on Facebook? Okay, well, I, 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 don't want them, I don't want them to track my phone. They're tracking my phone. So where are you going that you don't want anybody to know you're there? Okay, worse yet. When we find out that everything done in darkness will be brought into light, it kind of resolves our political situation, doesn't it? Because we hear over and over again, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Don't you know these people are lying to you? Don't you know that you're being manipulated? Don't you know they're being used? It's all going to come to light. Nobody gets away with anything. We have an opportunity to shine the light of God on the people around us. And whatever they're doing, God's going to expose it. Of course, whatever we're doing, God's going to expose as well. That can be scary until we realize that our eternal salvation is in the hands of Jesus Christ, not ours. We're signed, sealed, and delivered. 
doesn't mean we do whatever we want to do. But when that day comes, when everything is exposed, the only thing that stands between us and them is the blood of Christ. Jesus understands this. He says, take care in verse 18 how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And to one who has not, even what he thinks has been taken away. Now, there's a variety of truths in here. I'm going to share one of them with you. Because what he's talking about is producing fruit and letting the light of God shine through us. An incredible privilege that we have of putting God on display means that the more that we strive to put him on display, the more opportunities we will have to do the same thing. So the only question left, who is and who isn't in his family? And that takes us to our last vignette. Who are his people? A little surprise in here as well. So Jesus is in the middle of teaching this incredible teaching and his mom and, and the kids show up outside. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And verse 21 says, but he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now it sounds a little harsh. I don't know, mom. <laughs> you know, stand there at the edge of the crowd and Let's see if you're listening to what I'm saying. But Jesus is trying to share an incredible truth here. And here it is. The people of God are not born into his family. They are identified by the fruit that they produce. See, that's what this passage is all about. And Jesus brings it into a summary statement right here. Identifying God's people by their fruit. Now, some of the Jews, we know this, thought that being born a Jew made you part of God's kingdom. And what Jesus is teaching, at the root of what he's teaching, is that, no, that doesn't make you part of God's kingdom. What makes you part of God's kingdom is the transformation that you go through when Jesus becomes your Savior and Lord. Those people are part of God's family. And we're talking about a holy, supernatural transformation. And that transformation is a sign that we are born again. Now, we know that as believers, we know that, but that has implications for today. We're in a time where people are saying, well, I was born this way. God made me this way. It's like my friend. God made me an angry person. The key to eternal life, brothers and sisters, is not how you were born. It's how you're changed. So we can't use an excuse 
to say that I was born this way, God made me this way, so I'm going to continue on. God allowed you to be born a certain way so that he could show his presence in your life by the transformation that you go through. And it's not a worldly transformation. It's not a decision that we make about one thing or another. It is a holy, supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired transformation that produces in us godliness and holiness, not worldliness. Don't be deceived by saying God made me this way. He made you that way so that he could change you. Well, why, why would he do that? Why didn't he just make me the way he wanted me? Because the whole point is God putting himself on display in the transformation that we go through. It's not about us. It's about God. The further we go down this path of Postmodernity, the more we hear it's about us, it's all about God. We can't make this happen. We have to be changed from an outside force. The Spirit comes in and molds us and shapes us into God's image, not our own image, not our own idea of who we are, but God's idea of who we are. And so Jesus unveils his little surprise right at the end. How how does all this happen? Well, it happens by the hearing and the doing of his word. It happens by being obedient to the word that is preached to us. Not by changing it, not by altering it, not by ignoring it, but by conforming to it and obeying it and submitting to it. And that transformation, that transformation will produce fruit holy fruit. So our vignettes have revealed quite a bit to us, these little short stories about Jesus and who they are, his disciples are. We saw this proclamation and it was that the gospel is for everyone. Nobody's excluded from the gospel. Can't be excluded by borders or ethnic derivations or anything. Everybody, gender, Uh, There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no man, there's no woman. They're all subject to the gospel. And we saw the parable. The evidence that if someone is in the family of God, they will produce fruit. We saw the purpose of the parable was to equip the people of God to minister the gospel, to put their change on display and produce good fruit. And we saw the privilege that we have, and that privilege we have is the opportunity to put God on display in everything that we do, in every facet of our lives. And then we saw the people, the people that are called to this privilege. They're not born into God's family, but they are transformed into it. God's presence is all about transformation, not, not, not in a worldly way, but in a holy, heavenly way. So we're called, we're called to show the world this transformation. And you know something? It's not easy. It's not easy. It's something that we have to be thinking about. God's not waving a magic wand over any of us and just saying, oh, be changed. We have to be aware of the fact that the Spirit is working in us to change us. And sometimes we have to work contrary to our nature, contrary to the things that we want, the things we want to do, the things we want to say. 
uh, we have to deny ourselves. We have to, in the end, express some humility and put aside our pride and put God on display. Why? Because the whole world is watching. They really are. Maybe now more so than ever before. They're watching us. They're examining us. They're judging us. They're condemning us. And we can do what the rest of the world does. We can return all that to them or we can, we can show them God. We can put them on display. All this is made possible by that little catechism that Jimmy Carter shared with us at the beginning of the service. It's all made possible by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ died so that we could have the opportunity to put God on display. And we would always remember that everything will be exposed in the end. God will get his vengeance. God will exact his justice. If we trust in him, if we rest in him, then we will have more opportunities to put him on display. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that the Spirit is in us. And Lord, we confess that there are times when we just don't listen. We all stumble from time to time. We thank you, God, that you're patient. We thank you that you're gracious. We thank you that your son died for those failings that we have, Father. But we pray, Lord, that you would continue to mold us and shape us, Lord. Even though that molding and shaping may get a little uncomfortable at times, we pray that you would draw us closer to you. Make the evidence of your presence in this world through us prominent, Father, that we would walk everywhere shining your light upon the people around us. And we thank you for the sacrifice that Christ made in order for this to happen. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.